This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Thanks for joining us. As I'm sure you know by now, we're counting down to the final episode of The Takeaway, which will air on June 2nd. And before we go, we're using this time to introduce you to the dedicated team of The Takeaway, who are responsible for all the stories you've come to appreciate and love. Yes, y'all, these are Producer Appreciation Weeks. And today, we're showing some serious appreciation for a truly capital producer, Morgan Givens. Now, when I say capital, I'm not just referring to Morgan's first-rate radio making. I also mean that Morgan works out of Washington, D.C. And yeah, y'all, he's a big part of what makes the takeaway go, go. Hey, Morgan. Welcome to this side of the mic. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. Feels like I'm a tourist or something. Welcome to the mic's other side. Trippy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I am going to so miss your sense of humor, bro. Oh, you know, I, I appreciate that, um, especially because the conversation that we're going to revisit is a pretty serious one. And it's one that, as a Black transmasculine person, is pretty close to my heart. I'm constantly fascinated by the way society teaches us to separate parts of ourselves and to limiting expressions of the gender binary. And for a moment, Jonathan Major seemed somewhat interested in existing outside of, or at least peering outside of, those confines. Remember the ebony cover? How could I forget? I mean, Majors was decked out in fluffy pinks and reds. And Morgan, he talked about his feelings. Right? He was repping vulnerable masculinity in the cool way. And some folks still took issue with his wearing of pink in 2023. Wild, right? I mean, there were some folks accusing him of pushing an agenda of black male emasculation. Now, Major spoke with one of my favorite humans, NPR's Aisha Roscoe. And this was following the backlash he received for the ebony cover. I'd just be curious. You know, what they have to say. Tell me what masculinity is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't want to walk up on me in the street. Mm -hmm. But it's bigger than that. It's love. You know, it's like there's um, awareness. And then there's um, acknowledgement of ignorance. A big part of it is kindness, mm -hmm. use of power, gentleness. Mm -hmm. These are masculine characteristics. Yes. It's quite unmasculine mm -hmm. to try to emasculate another man. Shortly after that interview, in late March, Jonathan Majors was arrested on charges of assault and harassment against a woman. He was arraigned and subsequently released, and he continues to deny and dispute the charges. Here's the curious thing, though. After his arrest, we saw some of the same people who were up in arms about Majors embracing a more vulnerable side of himself, racing to defend him now that an allegation of violence was attached to who he might be. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, and I wasn't the only one. Which is why it's a good thing that Mark Anthony Neal, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University, and also host of Left of Black podcast, was around to try and help us make some sense of it through the historical lens of Black masculinity. 
I think historically we've understood black manhood to be strength, to be integrity, to be honesty, um, to be bravery, to be that figure in black communities that's always solid, that has everyone's back. And, and of course, that's meant very different things and, and very different things generationally over the years. Black masculinity, I think, black manhood has always been seen as kind of the last line of defense, particularly in the context of white supremacy, that if white supremacy is ultimately going to overthrow blackness, if you will, it will happen in the context of, of undermining the black man, right? Undermining our ideals historically of what black manhood is supposed to be. I think it's a challenge, particularly for young black men, because they're given a set of ideals of what that last line of defense should look like. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, historically heterosexual. It's supposed to be masculine, if not hyper-masculine, right? So it was, you know, supposed to be a performance of Black manhood that would strike fear hmm. in white supremacy, right? So they would never come for us. And I think for young Black men trying to live up to that ideal, right, which might not be something that is unique and, and part of your interior sense of who you are, but is a box that you're expected to fit in. I, I think that's often been a challenge for young Black men. And, and quite honestly, it's a challenge for older Black men also. Now, Morgan, I wonder what you think when you hear Professor Neal's thoughts and insights about what sounds like a core foundational tenet of Black masculinity. The master's tools. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I laugh a little out of frustration or maybe a little sadness. Like that old El Paso Taco Shells commercial, why not both? You know, I, I can't help but think of how emotionally limiting it must be to be raised with the understanding, even if unspoken, that your role one day could be instilling fear in order to be safe and to keep loved ones safe. I've had moments myself where I've been in potentially dangerous situations and leaned into the fear I knew others surrounding me had based on nothing more than the assumed belief that I'm a Black cisgender man. It's kind of maddening. And I think of the way society punishes Black men and boys for societal beliefs that spring from that fear. It's one of the worst kinds of Catch-22. Look, to be sure, and to be clear, Black masculinity as it's expected to be performed isn't the only type of masculinity predicated in part on an idea of violence. No doubt. I mean, the more I interrogate masculinity as a whole, the more absurd some gender performances seem to become. It's like we really just started labeling normal human behaviors as masculine or feminine. Crying. Feminine. Not crying. Masculine. And if who you are doesn't fit into those prescribed categories of acceptable behavior. Well, then you're up Gender Creek without a paddle. Now, <laughs> fortunately, though, there are some black men we're able to see embracing the full range of themselves today. The first who comes to mind is, of course, Billy Porter, who's been stunning photographers and fans on red carpets while strutting in evening gowns that defy the gender binary and openly embracing the parts of himself that he'd shunned in the past. Though it doesn't mean it's always an easy thing to do. And even with his confidence, it's not always certain it'll be accepted. Historically, obviously, there have been figures 
like a Bailey Porter in Black communities. Um, they didn't necessarily have a public forum to fully express their ideals of themselves, even as they're continuously expressing their ideals of what it is to be a Black man in, in their moment. And I think we've done damage to the idea of Black humanity by limiting the ways in which Black men are allowed to show up, how they dress, how they are styled, how they use language, right? How they move. We are complex human individuals. And I'm thinking also now the vocals of someone like Luther Vandross, mm. because it's a performance of Black manhood that shares a range of emotions. And it's not that Black men don't have emotions. But the acceptable emotions for Black men have often been anger and rage. <laughs> when we say anger and rage, we have no problem understanding that as a performance of Black masculinity. But when we start to talk about things like tenderness, when we start to talk about things like vulnerability, for many folks, they still see that as a mark of weakness amongst Black men, as opposed to a strength. So this is the social arena that Major stepped into, clad in a shaggy pink jacket on the cover of Ebony. Some comments were positive, others bristled with homophobia at the softness depicted by Major's image in the photos. On the one hand, you give Jonathan Major's kudos for being comfortable enough in his masculinity that he can wear anything that he wants. And I'd like to think we're in a historical moment where many Black men feel comfortable in that way. But some of the critiques that you heard, that success in Hollywood, if you're Jonathan Majors or so many other Black men, means that you have to be effeminized in that context, right? That the price that you pay for being a top-line you know, Black male actor in Hollywood, right, is to lose your masculinity. And I'm sure, you know, for many Black men who cover a range of personalities and styles within Black masculinity, it was absolutely hurtful to hear those comments. And those comments themselves are derived from this fear that Black masculinity is being eroded in this moment. And of course, then almost immediately, right, the next sort of thing that we that we hear in public space around Jonathan Majors is his arrest on a domestic dispute. He was charged with harassment and assault. He denied the allegations. And then following his arrest, some of those same sort of spirit of, oh, he's emasculating Black men, took up the position behind him as supporter, right, suggesting that, oh, no, this this is indicative that he actually is manly. He actually is sufficiently masculine. You know, this is the thing, and, and, I, and I'll draw from my own work in this context. You know, Jonathan Majors on the cover for many Black men, for some Black men, was illegible. Mm -hmm. What then made him legible is an accusation of domestic violence, right? That's the thing that made him a real man, right? Because, again, in some sectors of the Black community, amongst Black men and women, that what a real man does is is keep his quote unquote woman in control. And and if all other means don't work, right, then you resort to violence, right? And and you know, we know this is a long historical narrative, but not just in black communities. And and I think that's troubling to me, particularly how quickly it shifted. I mean, part of that is the world of social media where everything shifts, right? You know, one day's news story is gone five hours later. 
but just the way that folks, the sentiment shifted for folks who were so critical and ambivalent about Jonathan Majors prior to that moment because of the cover on the magazine, suddenly the ambivalence disappears. So what does that help us to understand about what sort of the definitions, the narrow definitions of Black masculinity mean for Black girls and women? I I think it's troubling still in the sense that, you know, we still have no real measure of the amount of domestic violence, um, abuse that occurs within Black communities. If there is still such a long-held belief that part of the role of a Black man, right, is is to instill discipline, right, mm-hmm. amongst women in Black communities and children in Black communities, and that the most effective means of that discipline is violence. And, and that's not even considering the role of emotional violence, right, in the context of this. On the one hand, you know, I think 20 years ago, we're not having the kind of full conversation about what Jonathan Majors looked like on the cover of magazine or the accusations of domestic violence 20 years ago to the fullness that we're having these conversations now. And I think in that regard, it bodes well for future generations of young Black folks, right, who, in considering everything that's going on, right, can have a much more deeper understanding of what's at risk, right, when we hold on to these very, very old stereotypes and archetypes of what Black masculinity is supposed to be. So listening back on that conversation, Morgan, I'm wondering, what does Black masculinity mean to you? Oh, goodness. You know, I feel like I'm still exploring that. But for me, it's about reclaiming my humanity, like all parts of it, masculine, feminine, and the parts that exist outside of easy categorization. Maybe one day, I hope we move beyond it enough for people to simply be who they are and hopefully create a world where we don't cage the imaginations, expressions, and humanity of others. Oh, and uh, I'd also like to thank fellow producer Katerina Barton for her help preparing this interview, too. So this interview with then Michelle Norris, who's the first Black openly trans woman to helm a major literary publication, Electric Literature, was part of our Black Queer Rising series during Black History Month. And part of what I love about the series itself is the way it creates space to uplift amazing Black queer people while also making sure it's not only about some of the trauma inflicted by society on us. Can I ask how you all came up with the idea for the series? Because I know it's not the first time y'all have done it. All right, so this one is all on our guy, Zach Bynum. He Zachary! Is, <laughs> and Zach, of course, is Team Takeaway's digital producer, and as I like to say, the keeper of the Gen Z vibes. So during my very first February hosting The Takeaway, I'd asked the team for Black History Month pitches, but I warned I didn't just want like McDonald's Black History Month facts, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Zach answered the call with this fully intersectional series that links our histories and our current moment. Of course, we all loved it so much that we just kept the Black queer rising going even beyond that first February. That is dope. Appreciate you, Zach. Now let's listen in to this interview with Din. She speaks with Janae Pierre, who is our ace backup 
and host of the podcast, consider this. You describe yourself as someone with an artist's heart, but there was one point where you thought you were going to be a lawyer. What changed for you? So I graduated from college in 2008. And, you know, that was when the economy really kind of fell apart. And I felt like I had been raised to believe that if I worked hard, I went to college, I would just sort of be handed some kind of stable job, I'd be able to build um, a sort of independent adult life. And I had worked toward this and been very excited towards it, even though um, I really had wanted at that time to play classical music um, professionally. I grew up playing the viola. And when it just seemed like there were no jobs to be had and there was nothing to be done, um, I I had kind of fallen in love with writing um, in college. And I just thought to myself, well, why not do what I want to do if the economy is bad and I'm probably never going to make any money anyway? And of course, we know how millennials are behind other generations, um, economically speaking, even now. Yeah. But we didn't know that then. I just thought to myself, well, just do what you want to do. If you want to be a writer, try being a writer. And so I I really did. I sat down and I just started um, working hard at trying to write good short stories. There's a note of religiosity that comes across in some of your work. Talk to me about that. Um, well, that is um, the 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 sort of conflict or tension with religion um, and queerness is, I would say, a central theme in in pretty much all of my work, and that comes from a very personal place. I grew up in a religious home, um, and my father was um, for many years he was a Baptist pastor in the American Baptist churches, and actually the whole way that my family made our way to Cleveland um, when I was a toddler is that my father got a job um, as what's called the executive minister of the Cleveland Baptist Association. And so in that role, he was over um, some 40 Baptist churches, and he was sort of equivalent to um, what Catholics would call a bishop. And so, you know, religion was the central sort of question and theme in my childhood and in my family life. And it it vaulted my family into this somewhat public sphere, which meant that there was an element of, of it not just being a personal, internal family conversation, but a thing that was a lens through which other folks looked at us and looked at our family. And so it was this huge, huge presence um, in my life. And a lot of my work, I think, for that reason, uh, deals with questions of faith um, and its intersections with other aspects of our lives. I know every artist has uh, their own reasoning, and I'm curious about yours. Why do you create? What is it inside of you that you want to make sure, you know, comes out and is seen, heard, and and read? You know, um, it's interesting because this is a question that I think for many artists, and at least for me as a writer, the answer is not always the same. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about having a whole career, having a body of work that I can look upon at the end of my life. And so at different times, there are sometimes different things, different forces, different parts of me that I want to foreground and show to the world. But I think ultimately, um, what's behind what I do as a writer is that desire to sort of take the innermost parts of myself, um, the things 
that are in the world that are the, that are the most perplexing to me, the things that um, the questions that sort of keep me up at night that I'm always pondering the big existential things. And I want to take those things and share them with the world because my feeling is that there are other folks who have many of those same questions, um, who might be in the same position as me or the same identities as me. And I think we go through so much of um, life thinking and feeling that we're alone in these things and these questions and these um, in these obsessions that might perplex us. And we're not alone. Um, and I think we come to art to find that companionship. And um, I think of it a lot as like, I'm taking something from inside myself. I'm taking my hand and I'm extending it to the reader and the reader um, is extending their hand and we're going on this journey together. And once we do that, um, we have a friend, we have a teammate, we have a compatriot by our side. All right, everybody, keep an eye out for Den Michelle Norris's forthcoming book, When the Harvest Comes. And we can share more of Morgan's favorite interviews and stories in just a bit. Now, Morgan, take us out of here. Stick around. This is The Takeaway. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and we're digging into some of Morgan Givens' favorite guests and interviews that he's produced It's all part of our Producer Appreciation Weeks. This next one is an interview from our friend Janae Pierre, who slid into the host chair for a little bit. And I don't want to take too much time from this one because Denez Smith is someone I want to leave space for. Their work is tender, vulnerable, and at times righteously angry. Denez is a Lambda Award-winning and National Book Award finalist, poet, and author. So let's make sure we leave that space you were just talking about. Here is slam poet Denez Smith from our series, Black Queer Rising. When I was 14, I was lucky enough to stumble um, into the local spoken word community here in Minneapolis. Before then, I had only been exposed to um dead and majority white writers. And all of a sudden, poetry was alive and vibrant. And it looked like me um, and it helped save my life and make sense of the world that I think I was awakening up to at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still write because it has continued to save my life and continue to be a compass and a star that I can follow when when I'm in despair, when I'm in confusion, when I'm in grief. Um, It's also become a place to hold my ecstasy and my joy and my change. If you don't mind, I'd like for you to read one of your poems. It's called The Slap. There's no love there, so the words won't come. Or it's not my love, so I can't speak on it. 
And my hands knew before my brain, which sent me here to capture the faulty pa papers flung into electric space about the hand meeting the face and how somehow this sets Black folks back into the fields and up the trees. I want Black people free from my decisions. I want my actions to be mine and useful. I wish my cruelty to wither and hopefully my karma has come. Ugh, the things I've said about Black women in public. Things that were overheard or deleted. Things I meant to harm and things I said because I was taught to say them. I am a faulty ally. I've thrown hands to defend, yes, but I've also fired the bullet of words. I knew which insults would hit and said them. Someone has the receipts, the scar. I called Tanya, so beautiful and kind Tanya, who was good to me and who I loved, dark in a way meant to hurt, and it did. Her disappointment haunted me for years. I was so small when I said it, so grown by the time it left my dreams. There was my proof. I too could hurt the people I love. What good was me wailing on my grandfather's face to allow her off the floor if I had already begun to turn his evils into traditions? At the end of my action was a black girl crying. Someone should have knocked me out. I wish I was better earlier. I wish a world where black women are safe. Sweet wish. I am starward now. This is my goodbye. My apology will be distance. Or keep me here and let me fumble into a steward of your peace. My prayer. May the world be a black girl's cake. My promise. Or burn it down. Their poetry and the musicality and their voice really helped bring that poem to life. And I can hear them grappling, in part, with the ways we cause harm to those we love, but they do so in a way that shows how those harms are learned. Mm. While also, of course, demanding a better world for Black women and girls and, and recognizing their role in creating that world. So we wanted to know what comes first for Denez when crafting their poetry. Do they recognize moments they could have been a better person and then the poetry comes or does the poetry come before this recognition? And here's what they had to say. I think it happens both ways, you know? I won't speak for all poets, but for as a poet myself, I am both moved by what poetry becomes a vehicle for and like to communicate, but also I delight in the communication itself, right? So I think what I'm saying is I love what poetry holds, but then I just love the language of the poem, right? So yeah. sometimes with the poem, um, it's just sounds and words or maybe um, an image. I often say like I'm a, I'm a poet of people watching. And so sometimes I see somebody do something weird on the street um, and just their movement, um, the delight on their face, the something else leads me to, you know, 
bring some words to my mind and I try to run and write the poem. For myself, I am always interested. I used to think I did a lot of poems that were pointing at other people. And, um, I'm more interested at this point of pointing at myself and um, thinking about how this thing relates to me in the world, right? So mm -hmm. looking at Chris Rock and Will Smith and his defense and uh, or Will Smith's defense of his wife and um, Chris Rock's, you know, like lack of defense, lack of lack of defense. Right. <laughs> yeah. Chris Rock's like not even that funny joke, um, his offense of her um, then leads me to think about myself. Right. And I think it would be easy to talk about um how the world treats Black women. I've written poems about that before, but how I am worldly, I am in the world, and how have I been part of that? And so, um, you know, I think it would have been easy to be the Will Smith but <laughs> in the poem, but to think about being the Chris Rock, how have I um, harmed these women who have um, so protected and enlivened and inspired me? You've long been on the rise, and you have indeed arrived, but... I'm curious, what does Black Queer Rising as an idea and belief, what does Black Queer Rising mean to you? Ooh, when I hear that, I hear a call to make a world where um, Black queer folks, Black trans folks are able to move past surviving um and into thriving, right? When I hear rising, I hear soaring, I hear flying. You know, it makes me think of shows like Pose, right? <laughs> where like, <laughs> yeah. where, you know, oftentimes we were seeing those characters survive and doing by any means necessary, doing what they needed to have to do that. Um, we also see how survival kills um, mm -hmm. characters in that show. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's moments like, I don't know, the uh, spoiler alert if you haven't watched all the way through Pose, but, you know, there's that moment where like angels getting married and yeah. um and she invites all her black trans and latina trans sisters mm -hmm. to like wear the wedding gowns <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah. and that's the moment where i'm like oh that's the rising right and like you know a world where we are loved where our joy is not um in despite of something else where our survival is not magnificent or a tale against what is common, you know, let people marvel in the magnitude and the wonder that are our gifts and our being. That was Lambda Literary Award winning and National Book Award finalist, Denise Smith. I gotta say, Morgan, you really do love an artist interview. I can't help it, yo. They do such phenomenal work. So this one is with Titus Kafar, who creates stunning visual art. I mean, the type of art that really just forces you to stop and look. It's almost like you've got no choice but to pay attention to his work and what he's got to say. And I gotta say, I'm super interested in the story he tells through his art and the way he forces us to face uncomfortable societal and internal truths in such a beautiful way. You know, I've gotten to see some of his work and phew, in person, it is really something. And Titus shared how creating art is an act that is liberating for him. I work in a lot of different mediums. I started as a painter specifically, and in many ways, I will always see the world through a painter's eyes, but artists feels like freedom. It feels like the opportunity to let other folks know 
I'm going to do it a little bit differently. So Titus is highly acclaimed as an artist. He's got stacks of coveted awards and recognitions. He's even got a MacArthur Genius Grant and a Time Magazine cover. And through it all, the honors, the awards, he maintains his sense of self and voice, even when dealing with folks who might not agree with his vision. But to hear him tell it, the awards aren't even the point for him. It's the work and the freedom he finds in creation that really define him as an artist. So why don't we pick up his interview right now? The first time I engaged with your art was the Unseen exhibit um, at the Smithsonian. Can you just for a moment, I feel like maybe people have, have at least seen some reproductions of some of these works and um, but but since it's radio and I can't show a picture, um, can you describe um, some of these pieces where we are, where you're literally peel, it feels like peeling down um, the canvas and and revealing what is behind? Can, can you just describe maybe one? So I mean I think the most well known, if that's the right way to describe it, piece in that exhibition is a painting called Behind the Myth of Benevolence. And that painting is actually based on a conversation that I had with an American history teacher. Um, she is a 80-year-old woman who I care for deeply, but we share no political beliefs. Um, I enjoy having conversations with people that believe differently than me, generally. Um, at some point, we got into a conversation about Thomas Jefferson. As I said, she's an American history teacher. She taught high school for 40 years. And at some point in the conversation, she said, well, Thomas Jefferson is uh, a benevolent slave owner. And that phrase confused me so much that I asked her to explain herself. And long story short, she wasn't able to do that. I left her kitchen table uh, perplexed, confused, upset, and went to the studio where I tend to deal with those kinds of emotions. I started a painting where on the surface layer, you have uh, a black woman who is clearly sitting in a private space. It's dark. Um, the background is blue. There's a um, bronze dish with water in it. Maybe she's bathing. And in front of that is a portrait of Thomas Jefferson that is pushed to the side, almost like a, a, a curtain being drawn back. And so behind this portrait of Thomas Jefferson is this portrait of this black woman. And the conversation in that painting speaks to the, the sort of horrific, uh, I say horrific, um, circumstance of, of uh, Sally Mae Hemings um, and Thomas Jefferson. So you, as the artist, as the creator in that moment, are you hoping for a particular reaction from those of us who will view it? Early on in my practice, it became very clear that I have to find strategies to push out outside voices. So I'm not thinking about, <laughs> forgive me, you or anyone else um, in the process of making the paintings. Um, when I'm making these decisions, they have to come from an interior place. If they are rooted in trying to be didactic and teach a lesson or something like that, um, I find that the work that I make from that particular place uh, is not good. 
I recognize that the things that I struggle with, the world sees as political. I recognize that when they see my painting where there are two black men in the center and their hands are up and it's whitewashed and there's a frantic energy to every brushstroke, I know that people see that and think, oh, this is, this is about Black Lives Matter. The reality is that painting is about me and my brother walking down the street of Chelsea and being stopped by police officers with their hands on their guns. And while my white collectors walk by, I am now made to look like a criminal when I've done nothing. So all of this stuff that can be received as these political acts is personal. Titus is also the mind behind the Oscar shortlisted documentary, Shut Up and Paint. The film you're talking about is uh, a short film that was shortlisted for an Oscar but did not get nominated, which is totally fine. Um, There's some really great documentaries out there right now that um, are talking about some really important stuff, and so I'm excited for them. But that film was about this conversation that I was having with a particular dealer who was trying to convince me that if I would just stop talking so much about the difficult things for me in terms of the politics of my conversation in interviews, he was specifically talking about, um, that he could sell more of my work. And spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> my response is, why, why would I... Why would I do that? Why would I do that? If I make that change, there's really no reason for me to make work anymore. Because then that's about you. That's really not about me. Um, and I'm selfish uh, in my practice. I'm selfish. I do this for I do this for me. Titus Kafar does this work for himself. But I'm glad we all get to benefit from what he creates and what he shares. But he's not selfish with his time and he's co-founded the Next Haven Artist Fellowships and Apprenticeships Program that supports and offers mentorship to young artists. That's certainly not selfish in the least. It's time to discuss one of my favorite hobbies, gaming. Listen, sometimes the producers just really teach me things, and you are definitely my Sherpa through gaming. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a gamer, but I recognize how video games are everywhere. Everywhere. But, everywhere. But ask me about anything other than maybe Super Mario Brothers or these days Splatoon, and I'm going to get lost. <laughs> Yo, that, that cannot be true. Okay, so I also know about Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man is better, but I mean... <laughs> I said I recognized, not that it was better. <laughs> All right, okay, fair, fair. So, most of us are somewhat familiar with that Italian plumber racing through castles in search of Princess Peach. And some of us even grew up with a blue speed runner hedgehog, Sonic. And even I, non-gamer that I am, can recognize the explosive growth of the gaming industry in the decades since the release of Atari's Pong. U.S. consumers spent $56.6 billion last year on the hobby. And when we look worldwide, that number explodes to $170 billion, raking in more than the global movie industry. Ain't nobody going to the movies right now anyway. All right, I'm kidding, but gaming is massive. And as it continues its cultural expansion and dominance, 
questions of who video games are made for, what types of gamers should have access, and what that access even looks like have emerged. Happy to say that Grant Stoner's got some ideas on that. He's an accessibility journalist who documents and examines the video game industry from a disabled perspective. Now, Grant's work has appeared in the Washington Post, Wired, and IGN. Let's start with how you got into gaming. When did that love for video games show up for you? Um, when I was a young child, roughly uh, three or four years old, I was playing video games with my brother. And at the time, my occupational therapist encouraged uh, my parents to let me play games because it was helping exercise uh, my fingers and my hands. Um, and because of that, I grew up playing games across uh, a variety of systems, which not only fueled my love for it, but helped keep my hands nimble. So you talk about the therapeutic benefits for your hands, but maybe you can just give us the broadest definition for you of what accessibility means. What does it mean to say that a game is accessible? Accessibility is different depending on what your disability is. For me, it's being able to play with as little barriers as possible. So every game has certain goals and accomplishments that you need to complete. But when you're disabled, you encounter barriers that others don't experience, whether through a lack of controls, uh, difficulty with certain encounters, and accessibility helps alleviate those barriers so that we can have the same experiences as everyone else. You talk about having the same experiences, but isn't that kind of part of gaming that different players really do experience games differently? It is, but if you um, spend time on social media and such, you'll see people actively fight against that notion. But in truth, like you said, Everyone experiences games differently. Uh, there isn't a single right way to play games. And that's sort of the message that a lot of my stories deal with, is that disabled people want the same experiences as everyone else. So we need to continue pushing and advocating so developers can make their games as barrier-free as possible. I love this language of barrier-free Talk to me about what is both simple and complicated about making games accessible. As a player, as someone who has regularly interviewed uh, developers and other disabled players, it's something as simple as maybe adding customizable controls so people can change their buttons, or perhaps something a bit more uh, complicated like difficulty modes so that people can seamlessly uh, switch between uh, easy mode, maybe normal difficulty. Uh, perhaps there's even varying subtitle options that you can use for deaf and hard of hearing players. It all depends on what the game is and how developers want their players to experience it. And whenever they understand that, then they can begin layering accessibility throughout all processes of the game development. It may seem 
obvious, but I want to ask anyway, why does it matter? I mean, this isn't about accessibility to a restroom or to a workplace or to a classroom. Why should we care if games are accessible? So video games are the most profitable medium in the entire world. Uh, they beat music, they beat uh, movies. Um, and when you consider that the vast majority of people on this earth play video games, whether it's on your phone, uh, a simple computer game like Solitaire or uh, Wordle for the New York Times, or more complex games like um, Call of Duty or, say, uh, Elden Ring. If you're preventing disabled people from interacting with the biggest medium, you're effectively pushing them out of society. Uh, you're not allowing them to engage in uh, conversations about pop culture phenomenon. You're not allowing them to uh, connect with other individuals. You're not allowing them to uh, decompress after a hard day. So if we don't open these games to disabled players, what we're doing is we're effectively shutting them out from the biggest medium. I so appreciate that answer. Although I am also absolutely tripping that it is the most profitable um, medium. The newest Avatar movie make over a billion dollars within a few weeks, right? But Call of Duty, with its newest release, this year made over a billion dollars in three days. And that game comes out at least once every two years, sometimes once every year. I know that uh, Call of Duty World at War was particularly difficult for you to play. Can you talk about the accessibility hack that you used? That was sort of my... Um, Accessibility Awakening, where it was the first time that I was playing an online game with friends and I wasn't able to fully uh, compete alongside them. So my brother taped a popsicle stick to the back of my controller. So with that modification, I was then able to compete much better. And it was sort of like the, uh, the first moment where I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I do need accessibility. Where'd you get the popsicle sticks? Oh, my freezer. Many popsicles. <laughs> and every time uh, one of them would break, uh, my dad or my brother would start uh, just eating a popsicle really fast so we can wash it off and tape it to the controller. <laughs> we went through many popsicles. Grant Stoner, Thank you so much for taking the time out to spend a little time with us here on The Takeaway. Thank you again for having me. All right, y'all, we're going to go ahead and head out now. But before we go, just a few words about producer Morgan Givens. N Morgan, I just have to say, my main thought at this moment, brah, is clearly you should have been sitting in the co-host chair for months. <laughs> I have loved revisiting these segments with you. And while we did this one for broadcast, I feel like it's just kind of a glimpse into precisely what you've brought to the takeaway 
from the moment you arrived. Your whole, full, fabulous, brilliant, hilarious self. And let me just speak for all of us when I say that we have really fallen head over heels for the self that you are. I am so grateful that you trust me to deliver the gorgeous language you write and that you've given me an opportunity to talk with people and about issues that mean so much to you and that by producing these stories as you do, you've made all these people and ideas and art and games matter to all of us as well. But Morgan, really, most of all, I just want you to know that I am rooting for you for freaking ever. And I can't wait to see what you imagine, what you create, and what you launch into the world. And I can't wait to live in the world that is changed by what you do. And Morgan, if you ever need someone to ride sidecar on the mic in a future project, just call me up. I ain't gonna be nowhere but outside with my chickens. <laughs> well, listen, not you out here trying to make me cry thug tears. But uh, no, I, I had told some friends shortly before I began working here and working with you all that it would be so cool to work with and learn from Melissa Harris Perry. And then it happened. So um, I'll just say that it has been a privilege, indeed an honor to truly learn and, and work with you every day because I do learn something from you every day. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that. So thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much to all of y'all for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway. Mm-hmm.